Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 33 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. Uh, I usually say that you can hear this every Wednesday or every other Wednesday, but uh, if you're following along, you'll know that that has not been the case for a little while. Uh, I do want to apologize for going on a little bit of a hiatus and uh, letting the mic cool off for just a little bit. Uh, just really haven't been feeling it. And, uh, you know, to be completely honest, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to continue doing this, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, things happen, I guess, you know? Sometimes you just, uh, you get burnt out or you just need a little bit of a refresher, and, uh, well, hopefully this little outing will, uh, jumpstart that and maybe get me, uh, get me motivated again to keep going. But, uh, you know, what could it be that, you know, got me, got me out of bed today? What got me to, uh, plug in the microphone and hit record, uh, well, that is Superblog Team-Up. And uh, Superblog Team-Up, uh, I've, I've talked about it many times on this program, where uh, a bunch of uh, very talented bloggers, podcasters, just content creators in general, uh, team up to discuss, you know, something on theme. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, top ten lists. Sometimes it's about resurrection. Sometimes it's death of characters. This time it is uh, about... Uh, well, the, the subtitle is Chromium, which... Uh, should tell you all you need to know. This is about the era of excess and all of the gimmicks that uh, all the comic companies would employ in order to entice us to maybe buy a book we ordinarily wouldn't or maybe buy more than one copy of a book we would ordinarily only buy one. Now, when this was announced, my mind immediately went to a certain book that I wanted to cover, but... There was a problem with that. I, I actually already covered this book on the uh, on the blog. So I had to go to my plan B and then realized I already talked about that one too. So uh, the blog post that uh, is up and live at chrisoninfiniteearth.com right now is uh, taking a look at uh, The Adventures of Superman number 500. Uh, the one that came in the white bag, not the black bag where he died. This is the white bag where, uh, you know, he came back. So... That post is up at the site for your reading pleasure, and it will include a link to, uh, or include many links to all the other blogs and podcasts and, and content out there that's taking part in this uh, round-robin affair. Now, working our way backwards, my plan B was going to be uh, Superman Volume 2, number 75. You know, it came in the black bag, it had a whole bunch of uh, gimmicks included there. Uh, a lot of people cite that one as kind of when the worm turned on the speculation era, and, uh, Maybe it was just that one push too far and uh, didn't really didn't really give back the return that so many people expected, you know, uh, to use the old, uh, the old chestnut of putting a kid through college or uh, putting a down payment on a house. It didn't quite do that unless you bought, you know, thousands of them that <laughs> you could flip for uh, pretty much exactly what you uh, paid for them in the first place. But uh, that was not my first choice. My first choice, and, you know... I like to think of uh, collectors and, and uh, completionists as existing sort of on a continuum. You know, we've all kind of got how far we're willing to be pushed in order to keep up with our collections, keep up with, uh, you know, quote-unquote complete collections. Um, me, personally, I like having one of every single issue. But when it comes to things like variant covers... You can just miss me with those. I don't <laughs> I don't mess with the variants. That's not to say I never have. I mean, there was, you know, X-Men Volume 2, number one, had the five different covers. And uh, while I didn't get them all at once, I, I eventually went back and got all of them just as, uh, you know, as a novelty to have them all. Because back then, that sort of thing was a novelty. 
I, I couldn't tell you with any amount of certainty that there's a single book put out by Marvel or DC that only has one cover these days. And uh, that's that's a little too much for me. It's not something that I'm willing to keep up with, especially not at 4 to $5 a pop. I personally don't see an added value there. All you're getting is an extra picture. And, uh, you know, if you want to see that picture, those pictures are available online. You can just Google Teen Titans Volume 6 Cover F, and it'll pop up on your browser. So you can take a look at it. It's not like you're losing out on content, you know? Uh, But that's kind of the realm we're getting into with the book we're going to discuss today, because we're going to be talking about Team Titans number 1. Now, this one didn't just mess around with variant covers, although it did have five variant covers. It also had, these weren't called variants, they were called additions, because they had different stories within them. So you're you're buying a first issue of a comic five times to get the whole story. Each, each issue, or each edition of this first issue came packed with a, uh, you know, a, a character-specific front story. It's not, it wasn't a backup story. The, the actual character stories led the issues off. And these weren't just, you know, like six or eight page stories. These were full-blown 20 page stories. So if you were interested or thought you might be interested in any of these characters, you would need to buy all five of these books. And at a buck 75 a piece, I mean, you're talking upwards of, uh, you know, nearly $10 in just one day in on one comic. And, uh, if you were a you know prolific comic purchaser back in the day, and already had five or six books on your pull list, you you know you just doubled it with one book. And uh, I see this one as being especially predatory because of uh, because people are completionists and people do want to keep uh, keep tabs on their favorite characters and properties and franchises. And also, I mean, this was the early '90s. You didn't know. What wizard was going to deem valuable or hot You know, uh, we don't We didn't have those apps like we have today That tell you what books are going to be hot um, You had to, you know, assume Yeah, It's like, are you going to take the risk In not getting the Terra edition? Because that's the one that could blow up uh, Two months later in Wizard So it's predatory In many ways And uh, I feel like This really was like Peak uh, speculation or speculate ploitation, if that's a word. Fansploitation. That, that, that's easier to say. It rolls off the tongue a little bit better. But that's where my mind went to. As soon as, uh, as soon as I was told that the topic this time out was chromium and excess and gimmicks and enticements, I, I, my mind didn't immediately go to the enhanced covers. Because while growing up, I hated the ubiquitous nature of these gimmick covers, the... Uh, the holograms, the chromium, the, the, the 3D glow-in-the-dark, whatever, I still looked at them as having extra. You know, they were giving us something for the value. Um, it might not have been, it might not have been, like, totally even on the scale, but uh, it looked extra, you know, if that makes any sense. So you might have been paying double the price for this, you know, crazy gimmick cover, but at least you were getting a crazy gimmick cover. Nowadays, it's just... A variant. You're getting another another picture, and you know, you're not getting any kind of new density on the page. You're not getting any sort of uh, anything that's shiny and, and reflects your your image back at you. Uh, so I don't see this stuff today as being especially uh, extra in value. And I promise I'm going to try not to uh, 
you know, be the old man waving his fist here for the entirety of this program, uh, just putting down all the gimmicks of, uh, of current year. Though maybe I shouldn't be making any promises I can't keep. Uh, we'll just play it by ear. But, uh, you know, back to Team Titans here. This was a, a pretty gutsy move uh, to launch a new title with uh, mostly unknown characters. They'd only made a couple appearances uh, before launching into their own series. They were kind of a bubbling subplot during the never-ending Titans Hunt story arc. I, I recently reread that, and oh boy, I don't know what I was thinking saying I liked that back in the day. It's uh, really not all that great, uh, if you ask me. Um, and actually, the book we're looking at today is going to be part of a different Titans event, uh, the Total Chaos event, which I would usually roll my eyes at. But uh, having reread it right after I reread Titans Hunt, I, I came away from it uh, much more... Uh, Positive than I, I ever thought I would I thought this was a, a fine bit of world building by Marv And uh, I feel like it aged a lot better than it had any right to Now I've told stories on uh, both here and at the blog About, you know, my run-ins with speculation and gimmick covers And how ultimately it was a gimmick cover and an issue of X-Men That uh, actually made me walk away from comics for a little while I just couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that I was spending so much money not so much on the gimmick covers, but they were, like, so arbitrary. They got to the point where they were celebrating everything. Everything was getting an anniversary just to justify, uh, you know, slapping some foil on a cover and doubling the price. And I feel like we as fans here, and uh, as, you know, somewhat rabid fans, were very easy to manipulate and to exploit. Uh, not to the levels of this Team Titans book, but... Uh, I think it's just uh, definitely a weird sign of the times, and it's it's interesting in that when you think back, or when you're talking to people, when you're in, when you're in the company of fans who were around back then, and uh, you know you, the topic of speculation and gimmicks comes up, everybody just kind of knowingly rolls their eyes, you know, like we're so so superior to that now, where it's like, oh, we we would never. Never fall for that garbage these days. We, we know so much better now that these things aren't going to be worth anything. And, and here we are with incentivized variant covers. You know, I, I can only hope that the industry lasts long enough for the comics commentators of uh, decades in the future to look back on now and with such derision. Uh, about the variant exploitation, like uh, like we do now with the with the gimmick covers and the holograms and stuff like that, it's just such short term planning, you know, for for minimal gains. Because we have these incentivized variants, which retailers need to order X amount of books to get X amount of variants, or to get a single variant. So they're cranking their orders up just to get this one book that somebody might buy. It's just not the healthiest approach, you know, for a long-lasting uh, comics retail market. It seems very short-sighted, and uh, it almost feels like a, you know, take-the-money-and-run sort of situation where Marvel and DC are like, uh, you know, circus performers, and they're going to pull the stakes up on the tent and just bug out of town very soon. And I hate to sound pessimistic, but, I mean, I think we should have learned our lesson from, uh, you know, the era of excess and... Uh, the gimmick covers, especially since we do act so superior to them these days. Uh, you'd almost hope that the lesson would have been learned. So what was that I said a few minutes ago about not making promises I can't keep? I, I very much apologize. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a complete pessimist, but uh, yeah, sometimes that's just what the uh, what the biz will do to me. Uh, 
I think I'll just send it over to the horns right now because we do have a pretty long book to discuss, or several pretty long books to discuss. Uh, so we'll do the horns and then we will come back with Team Titans number one. Team Titans number one had a September 1992 cover date. The main story, or the story that's in all five versions of this, is Total Chaos Part 3, Childhood's End. And we will talk about that, but it, we'll talk about that kind of in brief. Uh, because I'm, I'm assuming that eventually Total Chaos will become a, an entire treadmill episode somewhere down the line. Um, we also have our five character-specific stories. The first one is The Electrifying Origin of Kilowatt. Then we have The Shape-Shifting Secret Origin of Mirage. Then we have one just called Night Rider. Uh, there are no talking cars in that. Uh, then we have the high flying origin of Red Wing, and then we have one just called Terra, which should be followed with a uh, with a parenthesis and saying not that Terra. Um, now written, all of them are written by Marv Wolfman. Pencils by Kevin Maguire, Kerry Gamble, Gabriel Morissette, Mike Netza, Adam Hughes, and Phil Jimenez. Inks by Will Blyberg, Al Vey, George Perez, and Carl Kiesel. Letters by John Costanza, Bob Panaha, Panaha, yes, uh, Albert de Guzman, Clem Robbins, Gaspar, and Bill Lappin. Colors by Adrian Roy, Juliana Ferreter Bruce, Matt Hollingsworth, and Tom McCraw. Our assistant editor is Frank Pitterese. And the editor is Jonathan Peterson. This one had five cover prices, all $1.75 in their denomination. Now, even though all of the issues begin with the character-specific stories, we're going to actually save those for the end, and we'll start with a brief look at uh, Total Chaos Part 3. Now, this one opens pretty much exactly where it left off the previous chapter, which was in a different book altogether because this is a first issue. Um, again, we'll, we'll go deeper into that sometime down the line. Here, though, Donna Troy is about to give birth, and Lord Chaos, who is her son from the future, has arrived in, on the scene just in the nick of time. Now, the team Titans immediately jump into battle, while the real Titans try to make sense out of everything that they're seeing. Terra brings down the roof atop Chaos, which freaks both Nightwing and Deathstroke out, because Deathstroke is there too. He had his own ongoing book. It was also a part of this crossover. Now, before they can act, Mirage hops over to try and make Dick understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. You see, they're, uh, they came back in time to kill Donna Troy because her son would eventually become Lord Chaos and take over the future. The Team Titans are from the future, the far-flung future of, I think, 2001. You know, the future was such a long time ago. Now, Starfire ain't having none of this hussy hitting on her man, and so starts the Titans vs. Titans segment of the issue. So we get the Team Titans and the New Titans pairing off and fighting for a bit. And we do get a cute bit here where Gar transforms into a wasp and stings Terra on her butt. Which, uh, you know, they, they do have a history, or at least him and the real Terra did. Finally, Dick and Mirage call for both teams to stand down so they could try and figure things out. This discussion doesn't get all that far. Lord Chaos is tired of all this silliness, and uh, he and Donna, they phase out of the scene. They just vanish. Disappearing, he puts his hand up to her face, says, We belong together, and they... Zip, they're gone. Now we jump ahead, and the Amalgamated Titans Corporation reconnoiter at one of Steve Dayton's properties. 
Now this is a uh, scene that everything inside of me says that I should hate <laughs> But I, I, for some reason I just can't help but kind of smile when I look at it It's it's pretty silly, you know, the Titans are they're kind of acting silly uh, But it's it's not like out of character silly, it's more like punch drunk silly You know, that they're just so exhausted <laughs> And they're just making the best of the situation And, and it, quite, it sort of fits that situation Um I mean, we even have, like, Deathstroke is here Sitting on a, on a like, a love seat Being bandaged by Terra While Gar is watching And if you know the history of these characters At least the real Terra and those two characters It's, it's almost surreal in, in its silliness Now, after everyone is settled in Mirage regales the Titans With stories of their not-so-far-flung future And naturally, it sounds like a pretty glum place uh, Chaos is born completely sentient So this little baby is born sentient And is able to immediately age himself into adulthood Then he kills Donna Troy And then he takes over the world So it's a, he's a pretty bad dude uh, He reportedly kills one half of the uh, United States And he uses a food additive called numb dust In order to drug the rest of the world into submission However, this numb dust resulted in altering the hypothalamus of their, of their brains And resulted in a 1 out of a 1 million babies being born with a metagene Which, um, I don't know, it seems like we have a higher meta-birth rate these days in the DC Universe Or, you know, back in 1992's DC Universe Even without all the hassle of, uh, of numb nuts or numb dust Anyway, Nightwing ain't sure he's willing to take the teamers at their word and he hems and haws a bit when uh, asked if he's buying what they're selling. Now this leads to Terra going off on a terrific rant, where she mocks the Titans, and, and more importantly, she mocks Terry Long. Uh, she, she calls him a, a whiner, and he kind of makes a, makes a boo-boo face. It's, it's, it's decently funny. Uh, Nightwing is almost willing to give the team Titans the benefit of the doubt, but this doesn't mean that he's going to allow them to kill Donna, which is probably a good plan. Speaking of Donna, we rejoin her and her son, Lord Chaos. They're hanging out in some cave, uh, far from her prying friends. He would like for her to be comfortable, because, uh, after all, she's about to give birth to a god. Him. Back at Dayton's, Nightwing asks Mirage about their leader. And so we get what little they know of his origin. Now, you see, their leader is a meta-powered fella who Chaos's men found in the Pacific Northwest. And so they tossed him into a prison. He's got a pretty cool design here. I'll give him that much. He looks pretty cool. Now the leader, and we still don't know his identity, he organizes a revolt. They break out of the prison, and thus a rebellion is born. Back in the present, Mirage suggests that their leader is actually one of the current Titans, and again instills in them the urgency of Lord Chaos being, quote, on the loose in the present day. She knows the only way to stop him from destroying the Earth is to prevent him from ever being born in the first place. Which, uh, eh, well, as we wrap up this part of the story, uh, hate to tell the teamers this, but they're too late. The baby chaos was just born. Now, for our first edition-specific story, we're going to meet Kilowatt. And uh, the cover tells us that Kilowatt sizzles and makes an electrifying debut, so we will be the judge of that. Now, his story opens with a pair of young men attending what amounts to be an open house in order to get a job working for the Chaos Company. We're in Gibbs, Gibbstown, Louisiana, and the date is February 18th, 1998. So yes, the not-so-far-flung future 
or the distant past from today. And these two young men are named Charlie and Josh. The pair are surprised to see that Lord Chaos himself has shown up, though he's just there to do an inspection. Turns out the pair of Team Titans, who we never met, are also in attendance, and they leap right into action. Uh, Without even thinking, Charlie too hops into action, however does so in defense of Lord Chaos. His lordship makes short work of these Team Titans, and in recognition of Charlie's bravery or loyalty, uh, offers him an elite position in the fold. Chaos is feeling so generous, he even throws Charlie's buddy Josh a bone. The pair enter the elite force, and they begin their training. Charlie is an obvious standout, and is sent on a special mission to Transylvania. He returns a somewhat changed young man, though. Uh, Now, he's not a vampire. That's someone else's secret origin. Uh, He's now just had enough combat experience under his belt to begin to question Lord Chaos's methods and goals. Josh, on the other hand, just writes all these concerns off. He thinks everything's hunky-dory and cool. Now we jump ahead to August 27th, 1999, and Charlie is leading a crew of elites, including Josh, into a mission. They're in a sewer hunting down hostiles, and at first sign of them, uh, they fire on sight. When the smoke clears, Charlie gets an eyeful of what he just commanded his team to do, which uh, it all comes down to basically killing kids. Now that night, he writes a letter to his Aunt Annie to express his disgust with himself. He later goes off and has a clandestine meeting with a pair of uh, Team Titans who look a lot more like Guardians of the Galaxy. They look like uh, Mod Nex and Charlie 27 from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and he offers to uh, join with them to, in order to uh, take down Lord K. I I mean, I'm looking at them now. They look a lot like Guardians of the Galaxy. It's, you know, not the popular Guardians, of course. Now we jump ahead to February 16th, the year 2000, and once again, Charlie is leading his elites on a mission. This time, however, all second-in-command Josh notes that his pal doesn't seem as into this gig as usual. He even flat-out questions him, which which, uh, gets a little bit awkward. Anyhow, their target is the Team Titans, and these are the ones we actually uh, maybe care about. Well, at least we know who they are, right? Um, Now, the elites burst into the headquarters, and Prester John takes a blast to the back. As the battle rages, John asks his sister to carry him over to the computer before he dies. Now, Prester John is just a dude, you know, and he's uh, working on a computer. Uh, As she does so, another teamer, this is the Silver Shield, he takes a fatal shot through the haunt. Charlie removes his helmet and he pleads with his team to stand down. These are just kids, after all. Josh, however, ain't having none of it. And so, Charlie and Josh wind up getting into a firefight of their own. Dodging a shot, Charlie accidentally throws himself into an electrified panel, which Josh recounts to the reader in the most awkward way possible. It's uh, one of those, like, tell-don't-show or show-don't-tell things. We have Josh saying, You, hey, look out, that last blast of mine, it ripped open the circuitry behind you. Charlie, watch out, you're falling into the energy converters. It's it's really uh, just very silly. Now, seeing their field commander burnt up into an electrified human torch, this is... Just about enough to get them to bug out. When the dust settles, Red Wing checks on her brother, Prester John, who is very much dead. Or is he? You see, uh, going into this, I thought that Prester John, because all he ever heard was like a voice. I thought he was like this incorporeal being. And he kind of is, 
but I thought it was like more of an ambiguous presence and not so much having a Titan inside the computer network, but that's exactly what he turns out to be. He is just a Titan in the network or the internet of, uh, of this Earth. Now, the rest of the Titans, then, they bug out before the place goes boom, and they are surprised to see that Charlie came with them, but he looks, you know, like an electrified human torch. Uh, we wrap up with Charlie offering to replace the fallen Silver Shield in their ranks, whoever that was. Now, this is an offer that the Team Titans are very quick to take him up on. I mean, like, scarily quick. Uh, it's like, hey, I just came here to try to kill you guys, but I want to join you now. Okay, come on board. It's very strange, but, uh... That's all we got on Kilowatt, so uh, he did he did make his uh, electrifying debut. Our next edition-specific story is uh, Mirage. On the cover it says, Mirage takes charge, and in a little blurb it says, This lady kicks butt. And uh, again, we will be the judge of that. Now, Mirage's story opens with Chaos's men infiltrating a birthing nest, which is more more or less exactly what it sounds like. Now, you see, Lord Chaos has a vested interest in any potential metahuman births. I mentioned the numbnuts and uh, the boom in metahuman genes and all that good stuff. Anywho, now we join a birthing already in progress. A mother-to-be named Maggie is joined by her husband, Joe, just as she is about to pop. Now, the baby's born, and that's when the baddies strike. Now, it turns out that Joe wasn't Joe at all. Indeed, it was Mirage, though we're not calling her that just yet. You see, the real Joe died in battle, but Mirage knew how important it was for him to be by Maggie's side during childbirth. It's all pretty moot, however, because the elites are quick to kibosh Mirage, and they stomp off with her slung over one shoulder, and the under-a-minute-born newborn over the other. So they've kidnapped a brand-new baby and a shapeshifter. At the Chaos Induction Center a few hours later, our gal refuses to identify herself to her interrogator. And this is when she's actually given the name Mirage. And uh, we will later learn that this is uncannily close to her actual name, which, uh, you know, uh, what are you going to do? Anywho, the interrogator tells her that she is going to be converted into a chaos devotee. And that's exactly what happens. We jump ahead to March 2nd, 1998, and we join a crew-cutted Mirage at the Chaos Recruitment Hall. Here, she meets a fella named Abraham, with whom she will become quite close. Now, part of the theater of the chaos recruitment is, uh, killing a bird. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You see, now, this actually represents something. It represents that freedom equals death. It's, you know, indoctrination camp. They gotta get these kids on board, so fair enough, whatever. Anyhow, Abe plucks a bloody feather from the carcass, and he hands it over to Mirage, which is, uh... Sadly, the most romantic thing we're going to see this issue, so uh, I guess we'll take it. We jump ahead to a sparring session between Abraham and Mirage, during which Miri uses her shape-shifting powers in order to win the bout. We jump ahead to March 28, 1998, and we're in New York City. Miri, Abe, and some more cadets uh, go out on a successful mission wherein they beat up some civilians, which is a you know, pretty fun date. We then jump ahead to one month later at the Great Hall, where Miri and Abe are fighting for Lord Chaos's amusement. Here, Miri wins again, um, but then, after she beats Abraham, she's ordered to kill Abraham. She has no choice, uh, because they, they both know if she refuses, Chaos will just kill them both. 
Back in New York, it's June 18th, 1999, and Miri is using her shape-shifting powers in order to disguise herself as a member of the Resistance. She enters their underground hostel and takes a moment to observe the everyday misery of the Rebellion. She, of course, leads the elites to the bunker, however, meets them with some firepower of her own. She meets a young girl with a pair of red wings, and apparently a pretty little butt. They do mention that she has a pretty little butt. Uh, They leave together with a maniacally grinning Miri now understanding that freedom maybe doesn't equal death. Actually, freedom equals life. And uh, that's it. She uh, kicked butt. Now, our next next edition-specific story is Knight Rider, and this is not uh, the talking car. Uh, Knight Rider stalks, and in the blurb it says, Beware the Shadows. Now, his tale opens in Transylvania, and is April 29th, 1998. A young man named Dagon has been taken captive by Chaos's commander, Stalg, who is a very much our modern-day Dracula stand-in. He orders the boy thrown in the dungeon, which uh, I suppose is something a Dracula might say. Stalg then clears out an inn so his men can rest, for, rest up for the night before their next excursion. He orders the innkeeper, who uh, resembles a leaner Archie Bunker, to cooperate and also to ensure that there are plenty of ladyfolk around in order to entertain his men. We shift into the dungeon where a certain member of Chaos's elite forces feeds Dagon some soup and chats him up about his thoughts regarding his, leadership, his lordship. Uh, this soldier is obviously, you know, the guy we met a little while ago, Charlie Kilowatt. Uh, We learn that Dagon was taken in because he attacked the food processing plants because of their use of the subservience-facilitating food additive numnuts. Numdust. Numdust. Now, meanwhile, Stalg is... he's sucking blood. Actually, he's just biting necks to be a jerk. Uh, Now, despite the flashy collar that he wears and the fact that he looks very much like Dracula, he's not actually a vampire. He's uh, just a role player. Uh, he's in a vampire role-playing chat room. Now, we jump back to Archie Bunker, who is now warning folks of the Walpurgis Moon, which, uh, by my shallow Wikipedia research, is actually a real thing that happens and is celebrated at the end of April in Germany. Of course, the real one doesn't wind up killing everybody, does it? I mean, I, I, I you don't hear about mass trauma in Germany in uh, April. Anyhow, Innkeeper Archie has proven himself to be enough of an annoyance to be shot in the chest. You know, you always, I always say let the punishment fit the crime. Jumping ahead, Stalg has his men escort young Dagon to Castle Dracula. Quite the showman, this uh, Stalg. Uh, he does all the great vampire poses here. He's got the cape up, he's got the arms spread. It's really quite precious. Now, he brings the gang inside and into a laboratory of sorts in order to show off his quarry. It's the very skeleton of Count Dracula himself, complete with the oaken stake still jammed betwixt its ribs. Now you see, Stalg's plan here is to use the residual DNA and use Dagon as Dracula's new host body. Eh, Stands to reason, right? And that's exactly what they set out to do. So we've got Dagon strapped to a table on the roof and it's lightning everywhere. I'm guessing they want it to be hit by lightning, I don't know. Unfortunately for them, this is right around the time where that Walpurgis moon is kicking in. And so all of the townspeople, that is, you know, all those dead townspeople, they come together as some weird Lovecraftian eyeball horror. Commander Stalg goes to flee, leaving his entire regiment to perish, and we've 
got some good news and uh, some bad news for the goof. Now, the good news is his little Dracula DNA experiment worked. The bad news is, is uh, well, Dagan's off the table and he's pretty ticked off. Dagan feeds off the com- the commander and he halts the wall, purges beasts before it could devour, I'm going to assume, Charlie. Uh, he defers to their compassion and he asks that they stand down and, well, the Lovecraftian horror, he has no problem. It, it stands down. Now we wrap up this story with Dagan leaving Transylvania in search of the Chaos Resistance, which he hopes to one day join. Our penultimate edition-specific story uh, features Red Wing. Cover says, Red Wing soars and also warns us to watch the skies. Now, we're in Atlanta, Georgia, 1985. A lovey-dovey pair of Star Labs folk act all uh, lovey-dovey. Their flirtation is interrupted by a, quote, major league poop of a man who suggests that they just get married already. We jump ahead to the day of an experiment in radiation. Karen, the woman, is alerted that there's something wrong with the nuclear seals and rushes into the room to check on her beloved Paul. Realizing that the line of work that they're in is potentially dangerous, it's here that they decide to finally make it official and tie the knot. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes... uh, well, you know. The following year, Karen is very, very much with child, and she winds up going into labor early in her pregnancy. And she gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl with buds of wings sprouting from her back. Eight years later, we're 1994. Karen and Paul are watching the news, and it's all Lord Chaos all the time. What's more, Senate is legislating metahuman tracking, which, uh... Tell you what, really sucks for this particular family. Three years after that, it's 1997. Lord Chaos visits Paul at Star Labs to check on the progress of the Metagene DNA tracker. During this meeting, his lordship gets a good look at young Carrie, and, uh, oh boy, it gets kind of creepy fast. I mean, this is, uh, this is some Benny Mardonis vibes here. He's, he's really giving her the, uh, he's really giving her the eyes. It's very unsettling. Now, these are our vibes that uh, actually old Paul picked up on, too, old dad. Well, sort of. <laughs> he doesn't think Lord Chaos has any romantic interest in Carrie, but he fears that uh, his lordship is aware in the fact that she is a meta. And so he loads the family into the station wagon, and they drive out to the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And I, I do hear it's beautiful there this time of year. We jump ahead another two years. It's 1999. And the Medigene satellite is complete. The Levines, or Levines, they watch the news of it being rocketed into space. And at that very moment, their son John is uh, merging online, which, uh, that's his metahuman power. It's not, uh, it's nothing, nothing gross. It's nothing that you'd be afraid of walking in on him doing. It's, uh, just what he does. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned that yet. Now, this naturally pings Lord Chaos right where he itches, and it's only a matter of time before he's able to track the family down. Like, literally. I mean, they're there in seconds. Chaos's elite forces show up seconds later, and they do a number on their home here in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. They abduct John, but since Carrie was out flying, they weren't able to grab her. So she gets home and just finds the wreckage of their cabin and her dead parents. So that's not a good scene to come home to. We learn now that Carrie is able to track her brother anywhere he goes, which is uh, convenient for the story. She follows him to New York City. However, after the long wing-propelled flight, she passes out in an alley. She's picked up by some members of the Resistance and brought underground to their bunker. 
This leads right into the bit where we, you know, where we had her meet Mirage a little while ago, where uh, she's told that she has a pretty little butt. This all comes together here, and uh, it's here that they vow to each other that they will always fly free. Now, finally, we are at the last edition-specific story, and this one stars Terra. And uh, the cover says that Terra rocks, which is a really bad pun. And the blurb says she lives, and uh, to which I say, no, no, she doesn't. This is a different Terra. This isn't the real Terra. Just stop it. Uh, now, th- this is the only version of the book that I actually owned. Uh, going into this, uh, you know, I wasn't a Teen Titans fan back in the 1992 era. In the early 90s, I was all about the X-Men. I wasn't messing with DC, really. So I wasn't I wasn't really on the ground floor for this little event or for... Uh, for this gimmick I, I didn't have any kind of vested interest In getting all five of these So when I did go through the quarter bins To pull these out I only grabbed one copy And it was this one It was Terra Because uh, you know, Terra's the only character I you know, cared about Or knew about So I, uh, I, I'm i assuming that that's probably I'm guessing that the Terra one Was probably the one that uh, most people bought If they were only going to buy one I figured this might be the one that they'd buy Now uh, we open and it's Christmas Eve and the Team Titans are off to check on a superperson who is reportedly wrecking Elite Force fools inside a dam. Now, this superperson is Terra. The Titans suggest she settle her tea kettle. After all, if she destroys that dam, it's going to really mess with the cities that depend on it being there. About to be overcome by Elite gunfire, the, ter- the Titans and Terra wind up fleeing. It's here that we learn that this Terra is Brian Markov, that is, Geoforce's daughter. And uh, we'll just put a pin in that for now. Now, the Team Titans leader and Prester John discuss this possibility and automatically assume that she is lying. Even though she's a DNA match, there's just no way that Brian would ever name a child after a psychotic killer of a sister. I mean, stranger things have happened, but I do get what they're going for. And, you know, Brian didn't... What did, what, did he even know she was a psycho at this point? I don't know. Now, Knight Rider is sent to Terra's gravesite to see if anything's amiss, and uh, we find out that the tomb has, in fact, been desecrated, but everything is still intact. The leader then officially welcomes Terra to the team, uh, a gesture which brings her to tears. Uh, about ready for that other shoe to drop just yet? Well, duh, we jump ahead to Terra's room, which is under Prester John's surveillance, and here they catch her reporting the teamer's location to Lord Chaos. I guess you could take the Terra out of Traitor, but not the Traitor out of my... Eh. Elsewhere, Lord Chaos is meeting with his committee, and he spills the beans about Terra 2.0. You see, he assumed that none of the teamers would have even half a clue about the original Terra's treachery. Really? I, I figured that would be in the pamphlet somewhere, right? I, I mean, that's all... Eh. Apropos of nothing, it's charming that Lord Chaos celebrates Christmas. We see his, uh, <laughs> his conference room has a rather spectacular Christmas tree in it, and a lot of garland being strung, which I, I like to imagine that he's actually hanging it himself. Now, back at Titan's headquarters, the teamers bust in on Terra to call her out on her trickery. They then throw her into a Cerebro probe, uh, perhaps on, on loan from Professor X, to get to the bottom of what she's all about. Now, what they learn is that Terra was a girl who fit the original Terra's gimmick. She was abducted from a hospital, given plastic surgery and an unstable injection of the original Terra's DNA, which would leave her subservient to Lord Chaos. Now, the Titans debate just what to do with her. 
Miri wants to eliminate her flat out, which is probably the best idea. The leader, however, refuses, claiming that Terra is ultimately an innocent in all of this. We jump ahead to one week to New Year's Eve 2000. So we're going to ring in the next millennium with the dropping of the Millennium Ball in what was once Times Square, New York City. And uh, this is actually a really cool site. Uh, the, the I'm going to talk about the world building in a little bit here, but it was uh, really quite well done. And, and for an era of Titans that gets discounted the way it does, uh, this is a, uh, there was a lot of thought and a lot of care put into this. And, and you, you, you really can't, can't deny that. Um, now, this here, it's it's not December 31st, 1999. It's December 31st, 2000. So maybe uh, maybe Marv is one of those people who doesn't celebrate the new, the new century until the year one. I don't know. I, I've never been that kind of guy. Now, we're at, you know, New Year's Eve here. The streets are crowded. It's a, it's a mass of humanity. And the teamers attack Lord Chaos while he's busy pontificating on what this new millennium will be. Chaos watches as his elite forces are overcome by a tiny group of teenagers, and when he goes to intervene, he is surprised to find himself clobbered by a whole wad of Earth. It's Terra, of course, and, uh, you know, he's kind of freaked out because he thought that she was on his side. And, uh, you know, while she's not exactly the old one, she might be just as crazy. She destroys the Chaos statue, which uh, really makes a mess of Times Square, because this statue was massive. Now, it really is sort of reminiscent of the closing bits of the Judas Contract here. This is just Earth everywhere. Now, she reveals that her memory implants have been broken, and she will somehow be able to survive without Lord Chaos. During this brouhaha, it turns out that Lord Chaos missed the clock ticking over to midnight, so he actually missed the dawning of the next century. That's too bad. This, of all things, leads to him jamming away. And we close out with the team wondering what the year 2001 and beyond might have in store for them. Man, my throat hurts and my head hurts. That was a lot of Team Titans there. Um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I I always had this knee-jerk reaction to Total Chaos, and this whole era of Titans is something that uh, wasn't worth reading, wasn't really worth bothering with. Um, I tell you what, it's actually a lot more solid than I think a lot of people give it credit for. It's really just not half bad. <laughs> you know, uh, let's talk about the actual, you know, meat of the issue here. The chapter three of Total Chaos, which was, you know, the next next chapter in this uh, epic crossover event. And uh, I think this kind of puts, you know, a bow on act one. Uh, it's a three-month-long storyline, uh, nine parts. Uh, three of each book, you know, it was uh, New Titans, Deathstroke, and Team Titans that uh, each got parts in this uh, in this little play here. So I think this might be the end of Act One here. We've got you know the baby being born, so it really just pushes us forward into the next step. Um, and I think it ends pretty much exactly the way it it should here. You know, Donna gives birth to the baby, uh, so the Team Titans are unsuccessful in their attempt to uh, stop him from being born in the first place. Uh, we have the Titanic teams here, plus Deathstroke. They finally get past the, you know, the the Marvel meet cute of, uh, you know, fighting for a bit and then teaming up. So we're actually moving into the next, you know, stage of this crossover. Now we get a whole lot of exposition here, and uh, for the most part, it comes across as quite natural and unforced. Uh, a lot of times here, especially in like the middle of a crossover event. 
they feel the need to really pummel you with information, and it just feels like, you know, like some one of them just stands up next to a blackboard and is like, okay, listen, we're going to learn you something here, you know? <laughs> Uh, we do get a bit about their, you know, unnamed leader, which is maybe a bit forced, but probably, uh, probably needed for, you know, the ultimate reveal eventual, the eventual reveal, I should say. Now, the interaction between the teams, uh, was, you know, was fun, I guess. It was silly fun, uh, but a lot more fun than I ever would have imagined it being, especially with as, as dismissive as I was over the team titans, uh, and just a knee-jerk reaction to just not caring about those characters. Uh, but it was neat seeing things like Terra and uh, and Gar, uh, and also Terra and Deathstroke. Um, I would assume this was probably very jarring and very surreal for longtime Titans readers, just to see these characters occupying the same space, even if it isn't exactly the same characters. Uh, I think it's just a it makes a really cool visual, and uh, it's an interesting callback. I do like seeing jealous uh, Starfire here. Uh, she's ready to snap the neck of any girl who tries to get between her and Nightwing. Uh, Corey had uh, settled down a little bit from her <laughs> savage beginnings, where they were always worried she was going to fly off the handle. So that's it's nice to see her get a little bit of a fire in her belly again. Uh, we also have Terry, our man Terry Long here. He's, uh, I mean, he he fills his role well here. Uh, you know, I'm on record as not not really having much time for Terry, but. Here, he, he's shaken, he's scared, his wife and kid are just missing, and I, I think he filled his role well. I think he's a, here he's one of, the, it's one of the times where he's a necessary evil. And I also like that it feels like Marv is, is sort of planting the seeds here, because uh, as Donna will, uh, as Donna moves forward, uh, not to spoil things or put the cot in front of the horse, she's going to become kind of like... The, like the den mother for the uh, Team Titans, the young Team Titans. They're going to all live on her and Terry's farm. And as funny as that sounds, that's actually what happens. Uh, and Terry and Donna are going to have a little bit... There's going to be a bone of contention between Donna and Terry, where uh, Terry's going to feel like she's endangering herself for no reason, and uh, it's going to lead to some interesting things that never get followed up on. But they were interesting while they were going down. So uh, this really just feels kind of right, and uh, uh, yeah, top marks for it. I think this uh, the, the first act of uh, of Total Chaos was uh, was successful in in what it set out to do. Uh, Marv really went out of his way building this world, uh, you know, on on multiple on multiple levels here. Just uh, we have the present day, we have the future. Is it the same future? Is it another future? It was pretty interesting, and. Uh, it's definitely of its time. It's definitely a 90s story, and uh, it's definitely not for everybody. I'm sure there are folks out there listening to me, like, <laughs> regale this thing, and they're just like, what is this dude smoking, because this is garbage. But uh, And, and I, I totally understand, because this is very, you know, of its day. Uh, now our backups, or front-ups, because they did lead off the books, um, kind of a mixed bag, right? You know, uh, it's, they weren't all winners. But before we get into the thick of it here, you know, a little bit more about, you know, the gimmick. The gimmick here, five number ones, five different lead stories. I, I don't know that there's anything more comic book than that, right? <laughs> if, I, could you imagine if, if they had any kind of confidence that they can get away with something like this today? And, and I'm definitely not saying that they couldn't do it, because there are people out there that both spend ridiculous amount of money on variant covers and also will defend them to the death. So uh, 
I could see this actually being very successful now. And I could see anybody who is a, is in opposition to them being mocked for being too poor to keep up with comics. It's just the world we're living in now. It's a very, very crazy place. We we need the brownie points from the, the big corporations who couldn't care less about us. I, I don't know. So when I first approached doing this blog post back, this was my 900th blog post back in, uh, I believe it was the summer of 2018, I really thought that, uh, that I was going to come through this thinking this was just the stupidest gimmick in the world. And, and I got to say, it's not my favorite gimmick, but uh, if we were to take these as, you know, one-to-ones here, it's a very decent value for your 1992-era dollar. As I mentioned in the beginning, these aren't just little backups. These aren't six-pagers. These aren't, you know, eight-pagers. These are full-blown 20-plus-page stories, followed by a 20-plus-page, you know, part three of Total Chaos. So that's a lot of pages for a buck seventy-five. That said, though, I mean, if you're buying all five, that's that's upwards of ten dollars, and that could really, really (laughs) affect your 1992 comic spending budget. Because uh, books books weren't that expensive back then, so that's that's a pretty big investment, and it's a a pretty gutsy thing for DC to ask. Uh, and I, you know, I can't say that it didn't work. Uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that these sold decently and probably better than subsequent issues. But uh, I don't know. I'm glad this thing, this kind of thing, didn't persist. I'm glad we don't see stuff like this today. At least as far as I know, we don't see stuff like this today. I could very well be wrong. I I. Do not keep up with uh, with current day comic news. I'll read current day comics, but I I do not mess around with like newsaramas and and CBRs and and uh, what is that one? Bleeding Cool. I do not go to those, so I don't know what the what the latest brouhaha's are. But I, I do remember this happening again in 1998. Uh, Marvel Comics had launched Slingers, which is a was a short lived uh, uh, series that starred. Uh, four characters that each took one of uh, Spider-Man's identity crisis personas. Uh, back after the Clone Saga, uh, Spider-Man was wanted for, I think he was wanted for murder. So he he wore four different outfits, uh, like Ricochet and Dusk and Hornet and Prodigy, I think they were. And uh, he wore, in, in each of his four titles, he would wear a different costume. So, they I don't know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't smell Spider-Man, I don't know. Anywho... Marvel launched a series starring those four personas. Uh, it was a, a, a quartet of you know teenagers who took over the uh, the roles, and they launched it with a first issue with four variant stories. So each uh, member of the Slingers uh, was given their own you know character specific story, and I remember being kind of annoyed then. And I think those those weren't necessarily 20 pages. I think those were like short subjects, just a handful of pages to flesh out each character. So if you wanted to capture or you wanted to follow that, you'd have to you know, probably spend an eight to ten bucks on uh, on Slingers, number one. I, I, I think in the subsequent years, I found them in quarter bins and stuff, but I, I, I did only buy one. I didn't fall for the gimmick. I, I just wasn't invested enough in these characters I didn't know. And uh, it is worth noting that this was 1998, so the you know the bubble had already burst, and uh, nobody was really expecting uh, you know speculatory stuff, you know, like we were in 1992. So uh, maybe if the if 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 I was following 
Slingers back in 1992, I would have bought all four. Maybe if I was following Titans, I'd have bought all five. I don't know. But uh, let's get into the actual stories here. We'll start with Mirage. And it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, I'm not sure it needed quite the amount of pages that it got. But uh, I guess I can't be mad at it either. Um, You know, I I did poke a little bit of fun at the romantic gesture of old Abe handing her a blood-soaked feather. But, uh... In a way, I guess it's kind of sweet, right? I mean, these kids were born into war, and they're, they're, they're just offered such few moments to be human, you know? Um, and there, there is just such little beauty in this world. It's just such blood-soaked garbage everywhere. So when you, it's a feather, is just, it's a novelty. And I think it was poignant enough. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> and then you had Miri having to kill him in the arena, so that, that's a whole other level of romance, I guess. Um, Kilowatt, the first one we read, that uh, that might have been the most cliche of, of all of them here. Uh, we start with him being all gung-ho to join the elite forces uh, before finding out firsthand that the position's not all it's cracked up to be, and so he rebels, and he joins the rebellion and the resistance. Uh, nothing we haven't seen before, but it was it was decently enough done. Knight Rider's story, it wasn't so much cliche as, like, it was like flat-out camp. <laughs> you know, this is a, a weird vampire story here. I, I mentioned that Commander Stalg, he <laughs> he's basically like Grandpa Munster here. He's, he's standing there in these weird poses. It's just very strange. Um, I, I will give it this much. I did enjoy that uh, Dagon was somewhat responsible for Charlie... Really seeing what was up with Lord Chaos and uh, ultimately becoming, well, I guess he ultimately became Kilowatt. I don't know if that's because of our man Knight Rider, but uh, eh, what are you going to do? And I guess I did learn a little something about the uh, Walpurgis moon, So, uh, and I shared that with you all. So I hope <laughs> I hope that maybe I'll come up in the next trivia night and you can think about this episode. Uh, Red Wing and Prester John's origin. That was pretty interesting. And I dug the little bit of misdirection at the start of it with, uh, we had Carrie's mother, uh, and, uh, I kind of expected it to be her, you know, um, though the 1985 date probably should have tipped me off. Uh, one of the story strengths was that, uh, that would fill us in on some, uh, chaotic exposition. So we get to see that chaos is in the news, like, all the time, you know, we, we get to see what the common folk hear about Lord Chaos, and it's just wall-to-wall Lord Chaos coverage on every news channel. Now, another strength was letting us see the Elder Levines uh, during their lovey-dovey courting days, because uh, it shows that shows us that there was a time before Chaos, you know? It really makes you feel like we lost something when they died, and it, and it also, you see the gradual decline of the world and the people post-chaos. You know, they, they didn't have anything to worry about. Life was, you know, the bowl of cherries. They were in love. Then chaos sets in, and it's just, a, you know, a horror show. Finally, we get Terra. And uh, this this had a neat angle, but I, I just don't feel like it, it necessarily stuck the landing. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. It was pretty cool seeing this Terra be just as sneaky as her namesake. Uh, and I'm sure that this scratched a few Titans fans where they itched when it came out. But the whole thing after that was just a tad bit too convenient for me. Um, not mad at any of these backups. Uh, I don't know that I would say I loved any of them. <laughs> um, I feel like they could have all be shrunk down. You know, maybe give each each teamer uh, five pages and just do one version uh, of, of issue number one. I don't think they all necessitated 20-plus pages. I mean, this is... 
there's a hundred pages of character-specific stuff here for characters that were brand new. I, maybe it was just a little bit too much. And, and as I'm recording this year, I'm going into like an hour here, and it's like, yeah, this is definitely a little bit too much. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, overall, I found these in quarter bins. <laughs> so I... I I spent a buck twenty-five for all five of them, so I, I really don't have very many complaints. I think I got my quarters worth out of them, and uh, I'd say if you're uh, if you're Titans curious, if you're Total Chaos curious, this one ugh, it almost makes my skin crawl. But this one is uh, maybe worth tracking down. <laughs> now there is one version of the book available on uh, on like digital DC digital. I don't know if it's if it's one. I don't know if it's all the backups. I really can't see why it wouldn't have all the backups, but uh, you never know. You really just never know. But uh, overall, I had a good time revisiting this. I had a, I had a really good time revisiting it today because uh, I got to look at my old thoughts on it and uh, a little bit of dissonance between my expectations and uh, what I actually got. Being able to reflect on that was uh, was a lot of fun, and I and I hope I hope that came across, and I hope uh, folks who have never <laughs> dipped their toe into Quite this well of a 90s jank <laughs> Enjoyed the trip And that's gonna wrap us up For this episode of Chris's on Infinite Earth I want to thank you all so so much For listening and uh, spending this uh, Better part of an hour with me I will be including links To all of the participants Of Superblog Team Up Chromium Over at Chris's on Infinite Earth.com. I will also link to them in the show notes When all the links become available uh, I will also link to uh, the coverage of Team Titans number one from the blog in the show notes as well. If you want to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter. Uh, we're also at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Got uh, some irons in the fire, so uh, hopefully I'll have some announcements coming real soon about uh, some future programming here on the channel. Uh, again, this is chrisandreggie.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where noise hangs out. You'll likely find us. So one more time, I want to thank you all again for hanging out, and I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.